Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Now, please welcome, all the way from their front living room, your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey guys, and welcome to another Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. I think this is our 10th one, isn't it? This is numero 10. Is that 10? No. It is. It is. Okay. For all our French listeners. We still haven't got any French listeners yet. No. Got them well, all over the world, but none in France. Fucking French. That's because they listened to our story about the hanging pigs in episode <laughs> <Yeah>. four. <laughs> and they, they, they've formed some kind of mutiny against us now. Bastards. Anyway, welcome, guys. Yes, this is episode 10. Can you believe we're 10 episodes in? Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It is. And we're doing a little bit of a special one today because we're doing a show, and it is a show, on alien abduction. Yes, we are. Why, why did you put the, it is a show in there? Because it is a show. We're, we're performing. We're performers now. Oh, right. Okay. So well, next time you thank write... thank goodness your... this is a auditory show and not a visual <laughs> show because I am still wearing my... You look good in your robe. Yeah, with my little bunny, was it not bunny ears, yeah. Are they little bear ears on my hood? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got this funny vision of you now, sat here in your little bear onesie. It's not a onesie, <laughs> it's a it's a robe. <laughs> I can't it's believe like I go half a robe. I can't I can't believe I go to bed with a pink bear. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, moving on again. We're doing this show today on alien abduction. And what we're going to do, I listen to a lot of podcasts, okay, and I like a lot of the podcasts that I listen to, and I get a lot out of them. But one of the things I find about these other podcasts that I listen to is that they assume, if you like, in a lot of cases, that the listener already knows about certain historic cases, like the Betty and Barney Hill case, like the Travis Walton case. Today we're going to do an episode that really gives you an introduction, if you like, into the whole alien abduction arena. So if you're new to this, then this is really a good place to start. And stay tuned, because at the end of this, we're actually doing a giveaway for our 10th episode. (laughs) I know, tell me about it. So have a listen at the end, find out exactly what it is you need to do, and uh, you could be the recipient of the thing that we are going to give away. Okay. Not you, you're fucking here anyway, I'm talking about other people. Well, I know that. So you want to go first? All right, I'll go first. So I'll be talking about the Betty and Barney Hill story. Their journey into the unknown began in New Hampshire in September 1961 and would forever change the course of ufology. The Hills were an interracial couple. Why do they have to talk about the fact that they're interracial? Well, because back then it wasn't as accepted as what it is now, you know, and so these these people, a lot of interracial couples back then, didn't want to draw attention to themselves because of the persecution. So the fact that they actually came out and told this story even being an interracial couple, made it that little bit more credible. Right, okay. Barney, a 39-year-old black man, worked for the Postal Service, and Betty, a 41-year-old white woman, was a supervisor for the Child Welfare Department. Because of Barney's ulcer problems, the two had embarked on a vacation into Canada. On September 19th, they began their journey back home. At about 10 p.m., Barney, who was driving, saw a star which seemed to move erratically. He told Betty about it, and they both kept tabs on it as they drove along. They were just north of North Woodstock when Barney noticed that the star was moving in a very unusual manner. 
When they arrived at Indian Head, they stopped their car and got out to have a better look. Using binoculars, Barney zoomed in on what he thought was a star. This was no star. He could make out different colors of lights and see several rows of windows around a flying craft. The object moved closer, and now Barney could actually see people inside the ship. Why? Yeah, wow. Was this strange flying object being piloted by humans? The next thing the Hills recalled was being frightened by the unusual flying object and the occupants inside of it. Barney scurried back to the car where Betty was waiting. They jumped into the car and raced down the highway. Looking for the object, they found that it was now gone. As they drove on, they began to hear a beeping sound. Once, then again. Although they had been driving only a couple of minutes, they were 35 miles down the road. So I'm assuming the beeping sound was maybe what they needed some gas or something. It's probably the fact that warp drivers engaged. <laughs> yeah. Betty and Barney finally arrived home safely. Betty and Barney. That's well, the Flintstones. <laughs> oh I, my I wonder, god! I wonder when you were gonna. Uh, <laughs> that, I wonder when uh, you were gonna sort of come to that. Yeah. Yeah, because now this makes it oh so credible. At least they weren't Betty and Barney Stone or something. Rubble. <laughs> Betty and Barney Rubble is not Stone. <laughs> yeah, Bill Weed. No, I, well, that's funny. I was actually trying to think of, I don't know what I was, that's pretty funny. <laughs> okay. Betty and Barney finally arrived home safely. After seeing the UFO, the rest of their trip home had been uneventful. They retired from their journey and immediately went to bed. When Betty awoke the next day, she telephoned Janet, her sister, and told her about the strange object they had seen. Janet urged her to call Pease Air Force Base, I know where that is, <laughs> and tell them what she and Barney had seen. After hearing Betty's report, Major Paul W. Henderson told her, the UFO was also confirmed by our radar. Wow. So there was actually something in the skies that night. Yeah. So even though we're joking around, this bit's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> At least the hills were not seeing things, and they were trying to put the incident behind them. But soon, Betty began to have nightmares. In her dreams, she would see her and her husband being physically forced into some type of craft. Before long, two writers heard about the hills' story and contacted them. The Hills, with the aid of the writers, compiled a time chart of the events of September 19th. There could be no doubt that the couple had lost about two hours of time somewhere along the way. As news of the UFO sighting became more commonplace, the Hills were forced to hide from reporters as much as possible. Because of the missing time element and the desire to know what, if anything, had happened during that time, they decided to contact a psychiatrist. They decided on Boston psychiatrist and neurologist Dr. Benjamin Simon, well-known in his field. He would come to play an important role in the Hill abduction story. His suggestion for treatment was regressive hypnosis, which would hopefully unlock the memories of the two missing hours of time. His sessions began with Betty, and soon Barney followed. After six months of treatment, it was Simon's opinion that the Hills had been abducted and taken aboard an unknown craft. Regressive hypnosis, a controversial treatment, is often used to unlock lost memories. It's been used in a number of other alien abduction cases as well. 
Some of the memories that were uncovered from the hills included that their automobile had stalled on the road, the UFO had landed in the middle of the road, and alien beings came to their car carrying both Betty and Barney to the UFO. They were subjected to various medical and scientific tests. Before the aliens released them, they were hypnotized and ordered to keep their capture a secret. So that's weird. So they got hypnotized by a psychiatrist to get the information and then but then apparently they were hypnotized by the aliens to not remember yeah so at least in the mental health sector well no it didn't say that they weren't to remember it said that they were um hypnotized to keep the capture a secret but they obviously didn't hypnotize them very well because they don't remember that they have to keep it a secret. Well, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> that obviously in the whole mental health area, the aliens are worse than us when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, one good thing, isn't it? At least they were bad in 1961. The aliens may have got better since then. Yeah. Or maybe they were all like not-so-bright aliens. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they were like the... Um, <laughs> It's the Maybe remedial they, ship. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, they were the aliens on the training scheme, the apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. The apprenticeship? Oh, forget it. <laughs> Jeez, it went straight over your head. Only for a second. Yeah. <laughs> During the intensive regression sessions, the Hills would describe their captors as... Bald-headed alien beings, about five foot tall, with grayish skin, pear-shaped heads, and slanting cat-like eyes. This description very much described what would become known as the greys, now a standard description for the small beings with large heads, small mouths, and little or no ears, and hairless. Also, details were released about the actual procedures performed on the hills, both physical and mental experiments were conducted. Samples were taken of their skin, hair, and nails. Betty had a gynecological testing, and Barney reluctantly revealed that sperm samples were taken from him. The Betty and Barney Hill case is still studied and discussed today. It is the alien abduction case to which all others are compared and judged. So if you're interested in reading more about Betty and Barney Hill... The name of the book is called Captured, and I'm sorry, but at the moment who wrote it is escaping me, but we'll have a link to it for you. Excellent. Thank you very much. So a lot of people have actually tried debunking this case, and some people think that they have managed to successfully debunk it. Have a look for yourselves. The evidence is all over the internet, so go and have a look at it. Make your own decision. Again, the information that we've put on, we will share with you in the show notes. So I'm going to go on now to Travis Walton's case. I'm going to read you an extract from his website whereby he's got a condensed version of his book on there for you to read if you've got the time to do it. If you haven't as yet got that time, then have a listen to this because it's going to give you a rough idea of what went on. So as I said, Travis Walton was working in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest November the 5th, 1975, and he was working with six other chaps by the name of Mike Rogers, Alan Dallas, John Gillette, Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson and Steve Pierce. And he says, Just then, my eye was caught by a light coming through the trees on the right, a hundred yards ahead. I idly assumed that the glow was the sun going down in the west. Then it occurred to me that the sun had set half an hour ago. Curious. I thought it might be the light of some hunters camped there, headlights or maybe a fire. 
Some of the guys must have caught sight of it too, because the men on the right side of the track had fallen silent. As we continued driving up the road towards the brightness, we passed in sight of it for an instant. We barely got a glimpse through the gnarled branches before we rolled past the opening in the trees. Son of a... Alan started. What the hell was that? I asked. My eyes strained to make sense of the glimmering through the dense stand of trees blocking our vision. From my open window I could see the yellowish brilliance washing across our path onto the road another 40 yards ahead. Intrigued, I was impatient to get past the intervening pines. From the driver's seat, Mike could not look up with proper angle without leaning way over. What do you guys see? he demanded curiously. Dwayne answered. I don't know, but it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. Finally, our growing excitement spurred Mike into ringing out what little speed the pickup could still achieve on the incline. We rolled past the intervening evergreen thicket to where we could have an unobstructed view of the source of the strange radiance. Suddenly we were electrified by the most awesome, incredible sight we'd seen in our entire lives. Stop! John cried out. Stop the truck! As the truck skidded to a dusty halt on the rocky road, I threw open the door for a clearer view of the dazzling sight. My God! Alan yelled. It's a flying saucer! Ike, shut off the engine! We watched, spellbound. The men on the left side of the truck leaned over so they could see. There, a mere twenty feet above the ground, a strange golden disc hovered silently. Our attention was riveted on that object poised in the air. Impaled by the sight, we were held transfixed for one long, silent moment that felt like an eternity. The cold, jarring reality of what we were witnessing struck fear and awe to the core of every one of us. Suddenly, beholding its vivid, magnificent structure summoned all emotions at once. You could almost hear our hearts pounding above that suspended instant of silence. Less than 30 yards away, the metallic craft hung motionless, 15 feet above a tangled pile of logging slash. The craft was stationary, hovering well below the treetops near the crest of the ridge. The hard mechanical precision of the luminous vehicle was in sharp contrast to the primitive ruggedness of the dark surroundings. Its edges were clearly defined. The golden machine was starkly outlined against the deepening blue of the clear evening sky. The soft yellow haze from the craft dimly illuminated the immediate area with an eerie glow. Under the weird light, the encircling forest took on a bizarre hues that were very different from its natural colours. The trees, the brush and the grass all reflected subtle, peculiar shades. I estimated the object to have an overall diameter of 15 or 20 feet, it was eight or ten feet thick. The flattened disc had a shape like two gigantic pie cans placed lip to lip, with a small round bowl turned upside down on the top. Barely visible at our angle of sight, the white dome peaked over the upper outline of the ship. We could see darker stripes of a dull silver sheen that divided the glowing areas into panel-like sections. The dim yellowish light given off by the surface had luster of hot metal, fresh from a blast furnace. There were no visible antennae or protrusions of any kind, nothing that resembled a hatch, ports or window-like structures that could be seen. There was no motion and no sound from the craft. It almost appeared to be dead in the air. I glanced from one to another stricken face, turning back to that impelling spectacle in the air. I was suddenly seized by the urgency to see the craft at close range. I was afraid it would fly away and I would miss the chance of a lifetime to satisfy my curiosity about it. I hurriedly got out of the truck and started toward the hovering ship. The men were alarmed by my sudden action. 
What do you think you're doing? Mike demanded in a loud, harsh whisper. Placing my feet quietly, I quickly stalked closer to the mysterious vehicle, stepping over a low-leaning fir sapling. I carefully picked my way through the opening in the trees. I put my hands in my pockets in response to the cooler twilight air outside the truck. Can I just say, I would not stalk any UFO. <laughs> no way. Yeah, but it, we hear this in a lot of cases, don't we? You know, where people suddenly almost get compelled to get closer to it. I don't know whether it's them actually drawing you in or whether it's something like he says where he, he was just curious I know, but, but it's stalking a, lot. a UFO, mm. yeah, not going to be a pastime of mine. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Travis, the men warned insistently. I stopped walking for a long, hesitant moment. I paused and turned back to look at the six men staring questioningly at me from the truck. The sober realisation of what I was doing abruptly heightened the doubt I was already wrestling with. What should I do? I asked myself. Maybe I'm being foolhardy, I told myself. I won't get too close. But what if there's somebody inside that thing? I faltered. Finally, I reassured myself with, I can always run away. <laughs> I was committed. Without replying to the guys, I resolutely turned and continued my brazen approach. I moved more slowly, cautiously, covering the remaining distance in a half crouch. I straightened up as I entered the dim circular halo of light, softly reflecting onto the ground, under the craft. I was about six feet from being directly beneath the machine, bathed in a yellow aura. I stared up at the unbelievably smooth, unblemished surface of the curving hull. I was filled with a tremendous sense of awe and curiosity as I pondered the incomprehensible mysteries possible within it. I'd become aware of a barely audible sound coming from the ship. I could detect a strange blend of low and high-pitched mechanical sounds. There were intermittent, high-piercing, beeping points overlaid on the distant, low-rumbling sound of heavy machinery. The strange tones were so mixed that it was impossible to compare them to any sound I could remember ever hearing. Travis, get away from there! Mike yelled to me. I shot a fleeting look at the pickup parked in the road. Then I turned my attention back to studying the incredible ship. Suddenly I was startled by a powerful, thunderous swell in the volume of the vibrations from the craft. I jumped at the sound, like that of a multitude of turbine generators starting up. I saw the saucer start wobbling on its axis with a quickening motion, in a pattern like the erratic spin of an unstabilised top. The same side continued to face me as the craft remained hovering at approximately the same height while it wobbled. I ducked into a crouch when a tremendously bright blue-green ray shot from the bottom of the craft. I saw and heard nothing. All I felt was the numbing force of a blow that felt like high-voltage electrocution. The intense bolt made a sharp cracking or popping sound. The stunning concussion of the foot-wide beam struck me full in the head and my chest. My mind sank quickly into unfeeling blackness, but from the instant I felt that paralysing blow, I did not see, hear or feel anything more. The men in the truck saw my body arch backwards, arms and legs outstretched, as the force of the blow lifted me off the ground. I was hurled backwards through the air ten feet. They saw my right shoulder hit the hard rocky earth of the ridgetop, my body landed limply and lay motionless, spread out on the ground. It got him, Steve yelled. Now Travis goes on to describe his account of what actually happened to him while he was on board that craft and how he ultimately escaped. He was actually missing for five days. And if you guys haven't seen Fire in the Sky, it's worth looking at. That is a film that was based on the true story of Travis Walton's abduction case. 
And uh, it's definitely well worth a look, but don't do it with children around, whatever you do. Also on his website, there is information about talks and seminars or whatever that he that he does. And He's very active in the UFO community. I didn't see anything about him coming to the UK or, or anything, but people in the States, there are several places that he does go. Yeah, check his website because there's a lot of information on there about what happened and everything. And I don't want to go ruin this for anybody who wants to see the film or you know, wants to read the book. So I'll leave it there and I I won't obviously give any more spoilers. Right. And the takeaway from this particular thing, don't stalk aliens. It never ends well. Stay in the (laughs) fucking truck. Welcome back, everybody. So during this break, I've just been thinking a lot about the way that we perceive, you know, aliens. You've got the alien movies where like, they're very scary and their goal is to kill people to get the planet maybe and then the movie Paul that was hysterical one of my very favorite movies ever but you know he's this sort of nice friendly crash to earth by mistake yeah big mess up yeah <laughs> got captured by the government etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and then what else is there like cocoon yeah and you've got the old the old fashioned sort of 80 ones 80s ones as well where they had you know when you look at like batteries not included and all of those really yep. cool ones and et and so, et how could we forget et oh my gosh I didn't even think of et yeah how but it's changed over time hasn't it and mm. in fact there's an interview that i listened to in the early 90s that i remember to this day everything that was contained within that interview. It just absolutely drove me wild, the stuff this guy was saying. And he was an ex-NASA scientist that was working at Area 51. His name was Bob Exler. And in fact, the interview that I heard back in the 90s is on YouTube, and I found it today. I'm going to cut a little bit and put it in here because it goes in what you were saying, and that is the fact that there's the image of aliens that we're given constantly we're seeing it on the movies all the time like you said there's the ones that are frightening but then you have the ones that we're supposed to like and we're supposed to feel some kind of affinity with and some kind of connection with and it's weird that like you said with Paul how you know that was a movie that we were supposed to see him if you like more human I mean the way he was sort of bobbing about and dancing and smoking a cigarette and all of those sorts of things I mean he was cool because he taught what was the woman the the woman in there with the that had the eye? I, I should know this. Just can't think of it. He he taught her how to swear. Like that was yeah, exactly, yeah. so funny. Yeah, you know? she she was a, a fervent believer in God, wasn't she, initially? And by the end of it she was a cursing, yeah. you know, trailer <laughs> trash kinda <laughs> Yeah. But no, what I'm saying is is that it's weird how we, we are almost being given in I say the media, but what I mean by that is films, books, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We're given the the both ends of the spectrum, if you like. And would you, do you know this, that if you look up on Amazon or whatever, alien abduction or something like that, to look for serious books about the alien abduction phenomena, you will be absolutely inundated with sex books, you know, the old sort of, you know, let's read them and get off on them kind of books. Alien porn. Alien porn. It's massive. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know that it's massive, but, you know... You know. 
but it's a big thing. Seriously, it's all over Amazon. If you if you look up alien abduction, you see how many alien porn books there are where a woman just... has sex with an alien or a, a man has sex with an alien or something. And it's like there's a whole genre based around <laughs> UFO porn or alien porn. It's bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, that Bob Exler tells you in this particular interview that there's an indoctrination process, if you like, that certain people are a part of to make sure that it gets into our popular culture and that we get an acceptance around the whole idea of aliens so that when they suddenly release to the public that, yes, actually there's something going on, we know about it, we're working with them or whatever, we're not as shocked by it. Well, uh, again, I, we do have it on record that these issues are covered under national secrecy laws. Uh, however, there's somewhat of a dichotomy that exists here. Uh, yes, the technology is highly classified, but the issue of the vehicles themselves, of the presence of the intelligence species uh, behind them, is the subject of an indoctrination program, in the, especially in the United States, but it's also worldwide, I've found. Uh, they... Studies had been conducted back in the uh, very late 50s, paid for by NASA, actually, is conducted at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., regarding the implications of a confrontation with an extraterrestrial culture, whether or not this information should be withheld from the public, what the yes, outcome would be. Yes, because it's fairly shattering. It so is, that's, that's it, many illusions. Well, it does shatter, Moral, the, especially in areas of theology. Ethical, uh, the whole right, bit, yeah. Exactly. The, especially in the economic arena is what, of course, the, the biggest concern was. So, so as a corollary to what you're saying, why were they not extra careful that people like you didn't wander in and have a look, which you evidently did, and come over and talk about it on radio shows and television shows, which you evidently are? Well, because in effect, I end up, wittingly or unwittingly playing a part in their indoctrination scheme the idea is that in order to solve the problem of the chaos created by public disclosure uh... it was determined back in the late sixties that the solution to avoiding chaos was a slow long-term indoctrination program they got involved uh, the intelligence community got so involved in development of films like uh, close encounters of the third kind and so, so briefly why, what is your role in this why why are they quite relaxed about the fact that you're talking like this and and you, you talked about security regulations presumably you're breaching all of those uh, why are they relaxed about it they well again it's like i say is that uh, there is in fact an indoctrination program and i'm essentially playing a part of that you're a drip feed you could say that. I mean, the difference would be you can either have uh, lunatics running about talking about aliens and extraterrestrial spacecraft uh, without any basic background knowledge to what they're talking about and just speculating wildly. Or you could have somebody who actually knows something about it or several people who know something about it to set the record straight and to provide that information. So that was a little bit of a snippet of the interview with Bob Exler. If you want to check out the whole interview, you can find it on YouTube. Look in our show notes for the link and you can have a listen to it there. It's about 45 minutes long. Anyway, moving on to other things. Bella, what have you got next? I found an alien who likes Reddit. What? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to read what he has written. Okay. And then... Well, this is someone claiming to be an alien on Reddit. Well, you can judge it for yourself. All right, cool. Go for it. The alien has called himself A-N-O-N-Y capital K, in case anybody wants to look for it. 
Everyone tends to be scared of the unknown, and I don't blame them. Sometimes all it takes is a creak in the hallway or the rustling of the leaves outside for your imagination to run wild with a bunch of creepy what-if scenarios. But of course, before you know it, you wake up the next morning alive with no bruises or scars, hopefully. It's a haunting thought when you hear things like 95% of the ocean has yet to be explored. I mean, who knows, maybe we'll find the lost city of Atlantis one day. Sorry, I get sidetracked easily. Let me start over. I am a high school psychologist. However, my passion in psychology is focused on a very niche market outside of school. People who fear what they can't see. Let me explain. My clients consist of those who believe to have either been abducted by aliens or those who have been visited by some supernatural entity. It really is quite a fascinating experience as a lot of my clients, who do not know each other in any way that I know of, tell stories that have similar points and imagery. Now, what's my role in all this? I basically listen to these individuals talk about their frightening experiences with the extraordinary, give them some bullshit advice about staying strong emotionally, and then I receive a nice hefty check. Great, isn't it? I remember this one older woman in her mid-40s giving me such vivid descriptions of a night when she was visited by these horrible aliens. In her own words... I just turned off the lamp beside my bed and sat my reading glasses down to finally go to sleep. Suddenly, I felt a breeze coming from the right side of the room where the window was left open. That made me quite puzzled as I never keep the windows open during the night. I was about to get up to close it when I saw them. These dark, towering figures standing at the foot of my bed, looking at me with their big, all-black eyes. They were very tall, and I couldn't see clearly, but it looked like they didn't have mouths or noses now that I think about it. One of them reached out its long, skinny arm toward me, and I tried to scream, but for some reason I couldn't. I don't remember anything after that, but I'm sure I have been abducted. Unless this woman was tripping on some good shit, the way she told the story with a slight quiver in her voice made it a little too real. After she somewhat calmed down, I did the usual, take this to cope with the anxiety, let me know if it helps again, blah blah blah, and told her today's session was on the house. I do that sometimes when I see that they're visibly shaken. It's mostly because I know they're just delusional and I feel quite bad, honestly. Their poor minds playing tricks on them during the night. It's a common trait amongst my clients as they all have similar descriptions of what these aliens look like. It's pretty amusing to me, in fact. I don't see any of those descriptive features looking back at me in the mirror. Why? Mm. Human perception of what aliens are supposed to look like is severely flawed, but how can you blame them with all these movies depicting either big-headed, bug-eyed aliens or brutal killers like Alien vs. Predator? All I will say is, there is a high chance you have already come in contact with one without even knowing it. That's quite spooky, isn't it? Mm. What is quite interesting is that he his job during the day is to make people feel better. As a psychologist, yeah, trying to help them deal with stuff. So is he, is he actually really drawing a veil over these people and, and trying to convince them there's nothing really going on so that him and his kind can continue doing whatever they're going to do? Or is he just getting some uh, feedback from people... To use on a study that, or something. Yeah, that have 
maybe been abducted or maybe not been abducted, but just to see kind of, yeah, what they saw. Or he says that people's perceptions of aliens is different and he's saying that he's an alien. Therefore, is there another species of alien that people are actually seeing that he's not involved with that maybe he doesn't even know about? Hmm, interesting point. Maybe I'll find some more information on Reddit. Who knows? (laughs) Have you got anything else on Reddit yet? I do actually have a couple more things that I found on Reddit. Okay. This was submitted by Sadie Torres X. I was about four or five. I remember waking up in my bed and being incredibly thirsty, so I got out of bed and walked down to the hall toward my kitchen. I remember seeing lights flashing in the corner of my eye, so I turned my head to look through the windows into my living room and saw blurry, multicolored lights. They reminded me of looking through a frosty window at Christmas lights and kind of like police lights flashing. Everything turned completely white and I tried to scream but couldn't and the next thing I knew I woke up in my bed. I thought it was possibly just a nightmare but I could never shake the feeling that it was something more and because of these experiences I've become very interested in aliens. Today, I was going through UFO sightings from the state I live in when I came across two reported sightings that nearly made me pass out. In 2003, when I was about four or five, two different people reported seeing UFOs early in the morning. The time and date matched. The descriptions of lights were dead on. I finally believe I've found proof that this is not just a dream, that it was an experience. I always considered going to a hypnotherapist for this and another encounter I had about a year prior with my mother while driving, but now I'm definitely making an appointment. I would love to hear feedback from people. I just need someone to talk to about this that doesn't think I'm crazy, making this up, or just confusing it for coincidence. I lived in Holden at the time, my age, the year, the time, and date, match with these two other cases things that they've found yeah before you go on to anything else there i just wanted to share with everyone something that is quite weird that happened to me so it was in about the 90s i was just doing a security job at the time and i was on patrol at this time with this police officer it was probably about seven or eight o'clock at night it was winter time so it was dark and we saw this UFO, basically, and this is all I'm going to say for now because it was just unidentified and it was flying and it was an object. So I'm not saying it was an alien or an alien craft, but we saw something which we couldn't explain. And it was that vivid. The police officer that I was with was that sure that it was something... unearthly. Unex- <laughs> well, unexplainable, let's just say, yeah? That he actually went or radioed it in and then did a report on it. And I was with him when this happened. Now... I've thought about this a lot since, and I cannot remember, for the life of me, what this thing looked like. I can remember where we were. I can remember exactly where we were on this patrol. I can remember exactly everything else about it. I can remember him radioing it in. I can remember then going back to the control room where I was based and him coming in with me and us having a a cuppa and talking about it. I can remember all of that, but I cannot remember for the life of me what this thing looked like. You can't describe it. And it's bizarre. You wouldn't think that that would be the case. Now, there wasn't any missing time or anything like that. I'm not saying I can't remember it because, you know, I was abducted and blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying that it is bizarre when you think that something so crazy and something so 
unusual you would think would be burned in your mind and every other element of that experience is burned into my mind other than what it looked like it would be interesting to know if the officer that was with you can now remember what it looked like if i see him i'll ask him but i'm not in that field anymore so Mm. i don't know whether i'll see him but yeah i might be able to get hold of him do you remember his name i know his name totally i'm not going to mention it on here but yeah i know his name totally yes Ah, that's a bit strange. Anyway, do you want to carry on? This is my last story, okay? And it's written by someone named Kim. I normally keep this to myself, but for some reason, I feel like I need to tell someone. Maybe no one will ever look at this, but I will feel better. I have an open mind about life out there in space and in different dimensions, but the past few years, I've become a full believer. It first really started when I thought I saw the star Betelgeuse. One night when I was walking, I was in awe of how beautiful it was. Then it got bigger, and I was thinking maybe it was some sort of plane. So I continued to walk and look up, and it just got bigger and bigger then. I seen this outline of some sort of ship, and the light changes from this orange-red to white. Then three more ships follow behind it. They were all so low and didn't make a noise. Once they all passed over me, they formed this arc ahead of me, and had a single white light. Once the arc was formed, they stopped in the sky. They just stopped. It stayed like that for a few minutes. Then the light started to flicker like crazy, and then the ship started to zigzag in different directions and took off. I've never seen anything like that before. From that moment on, I continued to look to the sky. That's funny. That reminds me a lot of the Phoenix lights. Yeah. A while later, I was near the same location, but driving this time, and this orb started to fly next to my car. I was going 60. I could barely keep up. It was flashing white, red, blue, white, red, blue. There was nothing behind the light that I could see, but it got faster to the point that I couldn't keep up in my car without being in danger of wrecking. Plus, the road was about to end. Yeah, that's a pretty good reason to stop in it. I had to stop but it continued to fly to the next cornfield. Those are my first two. I have a decent amount of other stories, but I'm getting scared to tell people. This is the crazy part. I know they're trying to contact me by the dreams I have, the way I wake up, the bruises and scratches on my skin, the ringing in my ears. They have even shown themselves when I meditate. I so badly want to make contact again, but I need to get my story out just in case. Well, geez, that's not cool, is it? Just in case what? Well, exactly. Wow, okay. If anyone is interested in more, let me know. Also, I have a meditation group that gets together to try and contact them if anyone is interested in hearing about that as well. Why? They say that a lot of these aliens uh, communicate via telepathy. And in fact, if you listen to that whole interview that I will post a link to that's on YouTube with that Bob Exler Mm -hmm. that I played the excerpt to earlier... Yeah. He goes on to describe a lot of the technicalities of how the ship flies and and how it's what kind of fuel it uses. I mean, this guy's a scientist, so he actually describes things in a fairly clear and in-depth way as to how these things operate. And he says that when you communicate with these beings because he's doing it from an area 51 point of view where he's actually he's met them and conversed with them. Mm-hmm. or he's met with people who've conversed, and I'm pretty sure he said he has. He says that the translation goes on inside your head, 
so the thing will talk to you. How it talks and then you... How it talks and then somehow in your head you'll hear its actual message even though you can also hear what it's saying. Or whatever it's saying. No Google Translate needed. exactly. (laughs) But it's a pretty cool idea, isn't it? It is, He says that it all goes on actually inside you or inside the entity when you speak in English the translation goes on with this and it's all to do with telepathy so I did promise you guys at the start of this show that we were going to be giving a giveaway later on and I'll tell you exactly what this is one of my first books that I ever bought was abducted the true story of an alien abduction by Anne Andrews and Jean Ritchie and this is alien abduction case that actually happened in Kent in the United Kingdom. And funnily enough, I was working away this last week and I was less than two miles from this location and didn't realise it until I came back and looked looked through this book to share with you guys well, today. Well, you, you don't have any, like, chunks of missing time? No, no, no just a... Just not, a not noticed any, like, weird marks on you or no. scars that never used to be there? No, I haven't grown any breasts or anything like that. See, they don't like you. They're not interested. No, no, tell me about <laughs> it. So this book was first published in 1998, and it was one of the really, really best books I've ever read on this sort of thing. In fact, there's two. There's this one, and then there's Bud Hopkins' book called Witnessed, which is also another must if you're interested in this kind of thing. But anyway, I'm going to read you a quick excerpt of this. As far as the giveaway goes, we are actually going to send this actual book that I've got in my hand now to one lucky listener that emails us in to weirdwackywonderfuloutlook.com a little bit about them, who they are. How they listen to us. How they listen to us. Do you listen to it on your way to work? You know, etc., etc. And if you've got a story, share that with us as well. And what we will do is we will at random on the next podcast which incidentally is going to be in two weeks time because we're actually away next week so we're not going to have the opportunity to do the show we all have to have breaks yeah so episode 11 will be in two weeks time and during that episode we will draw the lucky winner of this book now it is a well-thumbed book i will say that okay so don't expect anything that's in pristine condition because it's definitely not but it's definitely readable and it's straight from our hands here to yours that's important because one day we may be rich and famous and you can say i've got the book yeah and actually if you want us to sign it we we even we even (laughs) will as well okay how's about that all right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah. you definitely won't be able to sell it on Amazon once you're done with he, it then. He's not a big editor or anything. <laughs> Honest. He's actually quite humble. Yeah, well, it's only going to be an X. <laughs> no. X-Files. So, okay, I'm going to read you the first part of the first chapter of this, just so that you get a flavour of what this book is about. Like I said, really, really good book. And so here it goes. Chapter one is called A Birthday Party. To look at, Jason is an attractive boy. Average height and weight for a 14-year-old. His bright blue eyes fringed with dark lashes are set in round, intelligent face. His dark brown hair is carefully cut into a neat style for school. He does everything that 14-year-olds do. He's average at school, gets bad marks for forgetting to do his homework. He's cheeky and smart-mouthed when he can get away with it. Terrific on a computer, hangs out with a group of friends and thinks money grows on trees. A normal boy, except that those beautiful big blue eyes hide a terrible secret. July the 2nd, 1987 was a big day in the Andrews household. Jason, the younger of the two Andrews boys, 
was four years old, and that day his mother and father had organised his first proper birthday party. By the end of the day, stuffed full of birthday cake and crisps, and overexcited by the balloons and presents, and friends who'd milled around the cottage for several hours, Jason collapsed into sleep on the sofa. His grandmother, Vi, short for Violet, draped her coat over him as the night air turned chilly. His mother, Anne, was relieved that everything had gone well, and settled down for a quiet cup of coffee with her husband, Paul, and her mother. Their desultory chat was interrupted by loud banging at the door of their cottage in Slade Green, Kent. All three were puzzled. It was ten o'clock on a Friday evening, too late for casual callers. The noise was urgent, insistent, louder than the sound of a fist, more likely a heavy boot thrust against the door with tremendous force, so that the frame seemed to shake with each blow. Paul jumped up and flung the heavy oak door wide. There was no one there. The noise of the banging ceased the moment Paul's hands reached the door. He strode outside and peered up and down the narrow lane that ended their cottage. The heavy clouds of a brewing storm made it darker than normal for a July evening, but even in the gloom he could see the roadway was empty. There were lights on in the cottage next door to theirs, but the curtains were drawn and the doors shut. As Paul stepped back into the living room, there was a loud crack of thunder, louder than Anne had ever heard thunder before. It was followed by distant rumblings which rapidly built into swelling crescendos as if each roll were breaking right over their cottage. The noise was so great that they could not talk and for a moment the strange knocking at the door was pushed out of their minds. The storm woke seven-year-old Daniel, their older son, who'd been asleep in his bedroom. He appeared at the foot of their stairs, sleepily rubbing his eyes and climbed onto his grandmother's lap. Jason slept on, curled up on the settee. Suddenly there was a flash of lightning, so fierce in intensity that even Paul, a big, unflappable man, jumped. As if on cue, Jason sat bolt upright, sending his grandmother's coat sliding to the floor. Both the dogs whined and cowered together under the dining room table. Jason was staring, eyes open, but oblivious to the room and the people around him. He opened his mouth and started to talk, pouring out an incredible stream of numbers, as if he'd hit the jackpot on some weird mental fruit machine. Fantastic numbers, huge numbers, strange algebraic configurations, mathematical terms like pi and binary codes, all spewed out of the mouth of this four-year-old boy who normally struggled to count up to ten in his picture books. Mm. The loud banging at the door began again. Then it seemed to come from the window, then all the windows, and the doors at the same time, and the whole cottage seemed to shake. Paul grabbed the phone to dial 999. Nothing happened. He had the dial-in tone, but the emergency digits were not registering. He tried again, and after a third attempt, threw the phone down in temper. He began to stride towards the door when, just as suddenly as he had started, Jason stopped talking. At exactly the same moment, the banging ceased. Then Jason slid from the settee and, still in a trance, started to walk towards the door. Paul put his hands up on his small son's shoulders, gently restraining him. "'Where are you going, boy?' he asked. It's pouring outside, you'll get soaked. The child looked up at his father and replied in a strange, emotionless voice, they're waiting for me, I have to go. Hmm. So don't forget, guys, if you want to read the rest of that book, then send us an email, weirdwackywonderfulatoutlook.com. Let us know who you are, where you are, how you listen to the show, and send us a story as well if you can. If you can't, and if you haven't got a story, rather than just making one up, well, you can if you want to, but we're not about fiction here. <laughs> Just send us the story and we'll draw it on our next episode, which is going to be in two weeks. But there's some really cool pictures here about 
what the aliens look like, etc., etc. I'm just showing Bella here. Yep. And they actually on a farm, these people, and there's cattle mutilations and everything. Wonderful. And there's a lot of documented evidence that goes along with this. So, yes, if you want it, it's out of print these days. You can get it on Amazon, but it's about 20-odd quid. So you know where to get it for free. Drop us that email. All right, that brings us to the end of this particular episode, guys. Thank you once again for listening. And uh, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast so that you get it as and when they're released. And then if we do miss a week, which we've only done once and we're not going to be doing all the time, but we do have to go away, it is something rather important, then you will get it as soon as we do the new episode. Yeah, and Paul, you know, little alien friend, Paul, if you're listening, come see me. I've only got two titties. But they're pretty good titties. Oh, God. (laughs) So, yeah, come see us, you motherfucking titty-sucking two-ball bitch. (laughs) Bye. See you, guys.